Hello, and welcome to the most honest and secure mental health podcast, brought to you in collaboration with the Tally app. Launching in October, Tally's purpose-built platform will facilitate daily anonymous group and peer-to-peer conversations. In the meantime, the Tally Talk podcast will serve as a taster for what's to come. For the latest news and updates on the Tally app launch, follow atally.app on Instagram, or you can visit www.tallyapp.com. Please also be aware that this podcast at times will cover sensitive and triggering topics due to the nature of conversation. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello Talliers, Josh here. Welcome to Tally Talks, the podcast, season two, episode one. Today we're talking about male sexual abuse and assault and we're joined by two very fabulous guests brad it was all the way in new york new york a city so famous i can't afford to go there and also rory who is in dublin which is the home of river dance it doesn't matter if it's called river or the cha-cha i cannot do it now i do want to make clear tally is an anonymous platform however brad is a public media persona I love that word. And Rory, his story had been made public a few years ago. So we thought for this episode, it'd be nice if we all just be ourselves and have a good old chin wag. Now I'm going to pass over to Brad. Brad, how are you? I'm great. So happy to be here. And uh, this this could be my first chin wag. So I'm excited. I think that's a very British thing, a chin wag. It's not a threat. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I didn't think it was. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to feel that wind. <laughs> Tell me more about your your work and your career. I've, I've got a few notes in front of me and it's very impressive. Oh, well, thank you. So I have done some hosting. I've done some acting, but recently I've been more of an activist, speaking and educating around masculinity, consent, and uh, gender issues, using the framing of the media that is always kind of around us and conditioning us and, you know, how, how it's good, how it's bad and and how we can make things better through it. Thank you, Brad. And I'm going to go to Rory now. Hello, Rory. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Josh. I'm, I can't speak for everybody from where River Dance is from, but I think in general, everyone in Ireland as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous and I thought you're going to go, it's not from Dublin, it's from Cork. <laughs> <laughs> But all is good. All is good. Now, Rory, could you just give us a bit about your background? Uh, I've read your story and it was quite harrowing. And I think you're absolutely brave for taking part in this podcast. Yeah, sure. I mean, as you probably know, I'm originally from Dublin and I've been living in the UK for probably the best part of 10 years now, actually working in podcasting and audio. But, you know, I'm sure as we'll go on to talk about uh, throughout the podcast, conversation today. Yeah, it's kind of taken me a while to get where I am for various reasons, but couldn't be happier to be here today. Thank you. And that's the point of this episode. The three of us, we're going to talk about our experiences and the hows and whys and where's and who's of what happened. And hopefully at the end of it, if not you guys, at least myself and the Talliers, that's a new name I've coined, we'll go away with a bit more information and be all the better for it. Now, at Tally, we'd like to do a check-in to these events. So a check-in is basically a one or two word response, just kind of detailing how you're feeling in this moment. And at the end, we like things to come full circle. We'll ask you another check-in or a check-out and see if you're feeling any better. So we'll start with Brad. How are you feeling, Brad? I am 
feeling hopeful and I'm feeling, yeah, hopeful and excited because, uh, you know, these types of conversations don't always happen so much between men. And so hopeful and excited are the two words I would choose. He's gone for two. Thank you, Brad. And Rory, what is your word? What's your check-in? I'm going to give you the word relieved because I'm glad that Brad is also here because I've had a few conversations like this. And I think when you're talking about something like this, which can be quite heavy and quite intense, sometimes it can feel like there's a lot of pressure on you to deliver. So Brad, I'm glad we get to share the responsibility today. Yeah, I'm glad. And my word is lucky. It's I'm going to go for lucky that the two of you have joined me to talk about something that needs to be talked about, but is very re- rarely talked about. Um, I have four brothers and we don't talk about this. It's mainly just sport and how quickly you can down a pint. So just to have my uh, acting brothers, <laughs> that's what you are tonight. I just feel so, so lucky and hopefully we can deep dive into tonight's topic and excavate some very, very interesting and important takeaways I'd like to know more about your background though, Brad, uh, specifically how you got into this line of work and how did it happen and basically why? Mm. The most important question, I think, is why. Any person uh, I disagree with, any circumstance that confuses me, why is always the first place where I go. For me, why I'm working in this area is a kind of confluence of a few different things. One of them being that I have kind of discovered that my love of hosting and communicating and broadcasting my past probably 12, 13 years is, you know, it's something I've honed in. It's a gift of mine. And then recently I, I wanted to find a way to use that in a way that was more of service, more helpful than just doing comedy or talking about, Uh, nerd stuff, which was a lot of my career. And when I really sat down and thought about it, these issues of sexual assault and consent and masculinity have kind of been a big part of of my life. And I have had friends who uh, have taken things too far publicly. And I have done my fair share of toxically masculine, if you want to use that term, things in my life. And I, I wanted to be a real part of that change and read some books about it, particular one called Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. And, you know, the solution at the end of all of these books is to be an active participant and, and speak and speak out. It's, it's kind of what's happening with, with racism right now. It's not enough to just be not racist, to actually enact change, to be helpful. You have to be anti-racist, actively anti-racist. And that is, you know, speaking out against racism instead of just passively not being racist. So that's how I feel about sexual assault, rape, and, and some of these other issues in that sphere. It is so tough, though. I'm not sure if American society is different to the British society, but I myself have been through a sexual assault. And for reasons I still ask myself to this day, why didn't I speak out about it? Why didn't I search for help? I always ask myself, why did it happen? I mean, I was in a relationship uh, and that's the person who did it. And that's affected my approach to, to relationships since. Thankfully, we're not together anymore. 
I beat myself up. I think that's a common thing as well. We beat ourselves up and torment ourselves instead of looking for help. Now, Brad, if I knew you existed only, what, nine or 10 months ago, you would have been an absolute gem to speak to. Uh, Rory, um, if you feel comfortable enough, I would like to know more about your background and how you came to be part of this podcast. I know you're going to be such an amazing person to speak to with lots of advice. If you do feel comfortable enough, then please walk us through what happened and how the hell you dealt with it. Sure. So I think my story actually begins where I grew up in Dublin and sort of my experience in school and those early formative years. You know, speaking purely for myself, I feel like at that moment in time, sex education in schools was a bit of a joke, to be honest. I obviously went to school in Ireland and that's my only experience of sex ed, but there was never really anything that we were taught on same-sex relationships bar maybe a 10-minute segment. And that's me being generous in a video we were once shown. And I remember that video. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's also not funny. It did show a couple at a party, a straight couple going up to a bedroom. And this sort of way of presenting consent was, what happens next? You decide. And that was the end of the video. And that was all the education we got on consent. So, you know, following that, I know, I mean, you know, it's not funny, but it also kind of is just in how unbelievably poor that education was. And then, you know, I then moved to the UK for university. So I went straight to London and, you know, don't get me wrong. I had some great times there. I've had some of the best nights of my life in London, but I think at that initial period of my life, when I was new to a really big city and, you know, was kind of trying to find my way in the world. Now looking back, I realized I was definitely still carrying a lot of gay shame that I didn't really know how to deal with. And I was searching for validation in all the wrong places. And I think on top of all of that, you know, it took me a while to find my feet in London, to find really good friends. And the people who I was hanging out with around that time, they definitely didn't have my best interests at heart. Now, I am Irish. I do love a drink. I do love going out. That's never going to change. But I was sort of socializing with people who, you know, that really was their raison d'etre and it was just what they lived for essentially. So I was getting mixed up with the wrong crowd. And at the same time, I was also in what I would say was a very toxic codependent relationship. And when that ended, you know, I didn't have the tools to process that or deal with it in any way, shape or form. And so I then used Grindr. Now, I'm not here to shame anybody who uses any dating app. I think if that works for you, that's great. But at the time, you know, I was using the apps in a very problematic way and I really was using them literally to find validation. And so then, you know, in one particular low moment, I got invited to an older guy's flat on the other side of London from where I was living at the time. And essentially, that is where I was assaulted. His intentions were very bad. And, you know, this was not made clear to me in our brief online conversation. But when your mental health is that low, and when you are young and vulnerable, and you are looking for that validation, and it's kind of being presented to you on this somewhat glossy, shiny app that's almost like 
a catalog of gay men. It's hard to say no. Wow. I've, I've used Grindr. I've definitely used it. And I think the word I'm going to take away from that is validation. Whether I'm horny or not, whether I'm insecure or not, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm drawn to the, the orange <laughs> shiny app and people are all smiling and they present themselves in the best way. And you just start chatting because it gets those endorphins coming. Do you know, like a, a comment or a love on Facebook or something. And you think, wow, I'm popular. Someone likes me and they're complimenting me. They're not saying anything negative about me. And then that kind of hooks you in then and you become open to something much darker. Now, obviously, I Grind is not solely a dangerous app or used in, in an abusive way. But the majority of people, I know a couple of friends who have met the partners through Grinder. Salford, not far from my hometown of Manchester, it was a couple of years ago now, and young men were meeting other guys off Grinder, but there were straight men with knives and other types of weapons, and there were, a couple of people died. Many others were attacked and seriously hurt. And it started off with, you know, the best of intentions. I'm going to meet someone, you know, and you tell your mates, yeah, it's great. But then, wow, it turns into a horror film and there's no way they can predict what happens. And I think it's just the care you need to approach these types of apps with. So having certain types of questions you ask or, you know, looking for triggers. So I think that's an education that would be nice to have. I haven't used it in a while. Uh, I mean, Rory, do you still use the app? And I'm sorry if that's quite a, a rude question after what you've been through, but do you still use the app or used it since? How dare you, Josh? I'm leaving the call. No, you know, Josh, here's the thing. Like, like I said a moment ago, I'm not here to condemn anybody who uses the app or any app for that matter. And, you know, of course, I'm still on some of the apps. But what I would say is if I'm going to use any of these apps, because it's not just Grindr, you know, bad things can happen on, on any dating app. I definitely use them in a very different way than I did back when my assault happened. And I think that, you know, one prime example of where things can go wrong is the case of Stephen Port. For anybody who doesn't know, he was a serial killer who, I think in 2016, killed four young gay men in East London, all under the age of 25. He's now serving a, a life sentence in the UK. But, you know, his intentions were obviously terrible. And the thing is, that can happen anywhere. He could have met those men in a bar. You know, he could have met them on the street. And of course, we know these things happen. But I think the thing about the apps is they give people relative anonymity and they also make it a bit easier to lie about who you are and what's actually going to happen. And also, once you have agreed to go and meet someone and you've sort of given the consent to meet them, it's very hard to back out. I think it takes a lot of confidence to walk into a situation where you've agreed to have sex with someone. And then when you actually get into their private home, say no. So that can be really difficult. And that sort of is what happened to me. You know, Stephen Port was drugging his victims as well as obviously eventually killing them and also sexually assaulting them. And, you know, in my case, I fell victim to an epidemic that is sweeping the gay community, unfortunately, which is the chemsex epidemic. So my attacker 
in my opinion, was definitely an addict, was definitely using a lot of drugs. And when I got to his property, it was made very clear to me very early on that turning down the drugs that I was offered was not an option. Uh, I'm not going to go into extreme detail on that one, but let's just say when I tried not to take them, that was not really going to go down well. And it was one of those fight, fight or flight moments where I kind of thought, is it worth me not taking these drugs, trying to get out of this house and something really bad happening? Or do I go into essentially survival mode and kind of go through with what's about to be laid down? And one thing I also didn't know at that moment in time was that when you are drunk or high, you cannot consent. I mean, that's something I never learned in school. And it's something that, you know, I only came to learn many years after my attack. So, you know, in a nutshell, I obviously was then drugged with the substance G and also with a white powder, which, you know, looking back on my experience, I now think that that was probably methadrone, but I'll never know for sure. And then a lot of non-consensual sex acts happened. Following that, I quote unquote fell asleep. But as anybody who's read up on the drug G will know that essentially is the date rape drug and it can put you under, meaning that I was pretty much passed out when a second individual arrived and he then proceeded to try and sexually assault me as well. At that point, I kind of woke up and I don't want to use the phrase snapped out of it, but for lack of a better phrase, that's what happened. And I got up and got dressed and left. And as you can imagine, you know, when something like that's happened to you, it's very difficult in that moment to process what has actually happened. And so I kind of put it in a box and didn't really deal with it for about five years. I know I've never been her biggest fan, but Lady Gaga was on Stephen Colbert a while ago, and she did say a really great thing about trauma and about how the brain deals with trauma and how it processes it. She really explained that when you have been violated like that, your brain, in order to survive that pain, can often put it in a box and teach you not to deal with it. And that's kind of what happened to me. And the final thing I'll say in all of that is in terms of safety on the apps and guidelines, etc. I mean, I know that Grindr and other apps have safety guidelines, but look, between the three of us, we can't think of any examples of the apps really flagging what you should and shouldn't do. And that says it all. At the end of the day, these apps are a business. They're here to make money and they don't really care about our self safety and welfare. That might seem like a, a somewhat of a blasphemous statement, but you know, I'm willing to die on that cross. I don't think the apps are doing enough and I don't think that they're overly bothered, in my humble opinion, under the First Amendment and the umbrella of free speech about our welfare at all. Wow, that was fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rory. Something that stuck with me was what Rory said about the epidemic of drugs. Now, it's almost like an underworld or like a, a shadowy culture. And I think really more gay men than they're willing to admit it openly do very dangerous drugs. I'll tell you a story and I wasn't going to tell this, but I'll, I'll tell it because I think it's important. I used to work in TV years ago, just for a shopping channel, not ITV or BBC. And it was an incredible job. And I won't give any names away. And there was a very charismatic presenter who became a friend. Absolutely love him. He invited me to a party, it is. And it was full of very well-known gay 
men. And as soon as kind of midnight struck and most of the guests had left, mainly the women, it kind of switched. Have you ever seen Coraline, where she is with a family, everything's kind of happy, then she goes into that dark world? It kind of happened like at the switch of a button. And then trays and trays of drugs were pulled out from God knows where. And then it just took a very, very ominous turn. But because for the, uh, I didn't know everybody there, but the majority were people are new and trusted. You do partake in a very innocent fashion. And once you take X, Y, and Z drug, it makes you feel a certain way and your decision making's quite distorted. It all depends on what drug you're taking. And then you do find yourself kind of witnessing an out-of-body experience. You, you, you're doing stuff, you, you're participating, you're doing these sexual things and other people are joining in, but it's almost like you're stood next to the action, watching yourself, almost asking, mm. what's happening? Why is it happening? Why can't I stop it? It's a very, very strange feeling. And I've been in scenarios like that quite a lot over the years. I'm, I've kind of stayed away recently. I'm more mature and I, I know what to look for and I hang around different types of people. But the part I'm going to come back to as well is it was very well-known celebrity. And it was almost like they got home from work and opened up a bottle of wine. It was just so normal. And it was a weeknight as well, actually. It was just so normal and everyone was just kind of expecting it. I'm, I'm never, ever, ever going to name names. At the time, I, I was only in my early 20s. This was a few years ago. So you don't really question it until later when you experience something that does kind of turn to shit. Sorry if I swore, you can bleep that. And then you realize, wow, I was in a very, very dangerous predicament and I shouldn't have been in that situation. And how do I stop myself from being in that situation again? Because, okay, we had a bit of fun and it wasn't so uncomfortable but I've realized probably 60 or 70% of the time it's, it's, it's not fun and it's actually quite dangerous. Now, either of you can add anything to that if you have anything to say or just let me know and we can move on if not. Yeah, Josh, I was going to say I'm very disappointed you're not naming the names because I'm all about spilling that tea, <laughs> but we'll leave that for another time. I think when it comes to that story, I'm actually not surprised by that whatsoever because whether you're talking about, you know, male celebrities in a luxury flat in Canary Wharf or a group of young gay lads who were out on a night out in central London, you really don't have to scratch the surface very far to find somebody who's either carrying gay shame or is very lonely or both. And when you have that marriage of those two factors, drugs being so readily available in the gay scene, and as you said, so normalized, it's just kind of a recipe for disaster. And I think it somewhat explains why we are facing this chemsex epidemic. I mean, it breaks my heart to think of a young gay kid who's, you know, literally a kid, maybe 18 years old and fresh out to London because he's maybe moved there for university or he's moved there because he's been kicked out of the family home because of his sexuality or he's moved there to get away from a situation where he feels oppressed. And one of the first things he might do is download one of the apps and almost instantly he's going to be introduced to this world of sex, validation and drugs. 
it was it was strange. I'll expand on it just a little bit. I should write a tell-all book, really. Oh, please do. <laughs> it has to be like several volumes. So these older gay men, very well known. Now, I, I realized every 30, 40 minutes or so, I barely remember, but about that time, a new, very, very handsome young man would come in, probably, God, early 20s, if not younger. And I probably met 10 to 15 different guys over the course of the night. Now, they had no interest in who these men were. I don't think they knew him. But it, the calling card, going back to the drugs, was, oh, I've got this, I've got some G, I've got some methadrone. And as soon as you say that to young kids who are strapped to cash, wow, all of a sudden you're Mr. Popular. Like, you're getting all this attention. And then once you've dosed them up, I'm not forcing them to take it. It, it wasn't like that. They become a bit more easy, if that's the word. What I found interesting, I shouldn't laugh, this must be a nervous laugh. One of them was a very famous celebrity doctor. So he was administrating these drugs, but he would kind of count, measure and distribute them all in, in a very, very sensible way. I didn't think I was going to use that word in in this in this monologue. So I think that did put people at ease, it put me at ease. Uh, whether that was right or wrong, because it was someone who had, it was in a position of power and he obviously looked like he knew what he was doing and there was a, a lot of trust there. But I mean, come on, he, he could have, he could have given us, injected us with moonshine and we, we would have gone for it. After nights like that, it, it does affect you mentally. It can't not. You've put substance up your nose and in your mouth and all that kind of stuff. So mentally and physically, the next day, you feel worthless, you feel low, you're depressed, you're having anxiety attacks. And that lasts probably, in my experience, three or four days. I'd just like to interrupt the show and give our two amazing partner podcasts a quick shout out. Firstly, My Mental Mates is the podcast opening up the conversation on mental health by having guests share their experiences and discussing the good, the bad and the ugly of mental health. At the end of each episode, each guest gets to choose songs to add to the My Mental Mates hit the reset button music playlist available on Spotify and Apple Music. Podcast host Anthony started the podcast in line with running the London Marathon this year for Charity Mind. Good boy. So head to your podcast provider and check it out now. Secondly, now in its second season, the Men Talk Health podcast features discussions surrounding things such as men's mental health and what it's like to live with a mental disorder. The conversations are candid and authentic, tackling taboo topics which aren't talked about in the public sphere. Men's Talk's main aim is to encourage men to discuss mental health with their friends, breaking down the stigma that it's weak or not masculine to be vulnerable and open around your mates. To listen to the latest episode, search Men Talk Health podcast into all platforms or you can follow mentor health's host at underscore loop brand on instagram and use the link in his bio to access the latest episodes if you want a new mental health podcast to add to your collection welcome to mentor health thank you and back to the show danny you guys want to add anything i would just say i mean i read the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, highly suggested. And in it, he he really focuses in a portion of the book talking about the myopia that happens when you are drunk. And this happens with other drugs as well. And that is when you do not have foresight into the future. You are not thinking about the reactions, about the consequences of your current state and your and your actions right now. And so 
that's why we do crazy things when we're drunk. And that's why we don't always, you know, we, we have a lot of regrets with the physical hangover. There's that emotional hangover. And that's why so, so many uh, assaults and rapes happen uh, around alcohol. And it's not because drinking is such a big part of all of our lives. I mean, Rory, you're Irish. I'm Irish. I, you know, I went to college to have that, you know, crazy frat guy experience. And I did. And, but the thing about it is that's a very kind of straight male centered view of what college can be. And it is that kind of hunting ground to like the documentary. And so, yes, club culture, going out, all of the stuff, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun to do drugs. It's fun to drink, but having, being aware and then maybe even having a plan or, or having a buddy system with your friends or something where you're kind of looking out for each other in these circumstances where you are myopic because you're making choices that you are going to regret or that you are not able to consent to. I will also say a great part of, of making consent culture better is uh, this quote from Esther Perel that I heard after the Harvey Weinstein story broke, was that she is looking forward to a world where we treat sexual assault or menacing, sexual menacing, like we do drunk drivers, where if we're seeing it, and it's, you know, it, it could be something very small, but someone kind of, you know, bugging a woman or a man and being a little too pushy and you're hearing no. And it seems just, you know, that feeling when it's like, there's something weird going on over here. People are uncomfortable pointing it out in the moment, like we do, or stopping someone in the moment, like we do when someone's going to drunk drive. That's the kind of way we fix this socially, because waiting for something worse to happen is how it perpetuates and how it continues to be something that then goes through the courts. And it's this much more complicated thing than stopping, you know, drunk driving from happening at the source. And so that's, that's my hope as well. But I, I kind of love that uh, comparison. I've seen it happen. I think we've all seen it happen, especially in Canal Street. And now this isn't putting negativity onto the gay community, but there are moments when I think, is that person okay? Should I have asked him if he's okay? Should I flag it up with the policeman I can see walking past down there or something like that. And I do kind of question why I don't. Do you think I'm afraid of a bust up or I want to mind my own business? So what do you think that is? Well, I can talk about getting the police involved if you want and why that is not something I have a lot of faith in. I mean, about a year after my, about a year after my story going public, I was invited to speak at a conference, which was the first conference of its kind. It was the Chemsex Crime Prevention Conference, which essentially was attended by a bunch of senior police and detectives and people who were working in chemsex crime prevention. Now, I have no background in law, whatever. I felt like Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. I was loving it, except I'm ginger, so don't know if I quite fit the brief. But anyway, I was there and I was one of the people who gave sort of a, a human experience uh, speech. And two of the detectives who worked very closely on the Stephen Port case, who is the serial killer from London, who's been jailed for killing four young gay men in chemsex related deaths, I have to say, they were texting on their phones throughout my speech. And, you know, I've never been one to shy away from the spotlight. Yes, I do like attention, but I don't think it's too much to ask for their eyes for 
five minutes while I'm telling my story. And they also, in that circumstance, were making jokes about Stephen Port's appearance to the whole room, which, I mean, Stephen Port's not a looker, but I don't think it's relevant to the conversation that was being had that day. And in that moment, to be honest with you, my faith in reporting any sort of hate crime was kind of lost or any assault or any attack that perhaps has some sort of homophobia involved in it because I just felt like the police don't want to know. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that's true in all cases. I was invited there by somebody else who works for the London Met Police, somebody who I have great faith in. But I actually think that you know, in some ways the system is broken and that kind of taught me not to have a huge amount of faith in the police, which I am not saying is the right lesson for everyone. I'm not saying we shouldn't report these incidents, these crimes, but I'm saying in my experience with two very senior police who specifically work in prevention for this type of crime, it wasn't good. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, what I touched on before, I think if I see that type of thing, I'd kind of judge the situation and I mean, Canal Street's a very public place anyway. Well, I mean, anywhere is where you go out for a drink and this thing may occur. But I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's so frustrating. And what's things like since though, Rory? I mean, it, this was it year, years ago, six years ago, something? Yeah, it was about six years ago now. The story went public in 2020. So that instance was about a year ago. And I mean, I think... I I can't specifically speak on statistics around, you know, people reporting these crimes and the reaction to that. I know there have been a few articles in The Guardian about um, there being fewer convictions in rape cases than ever, but I don't have all the stats on that. What I do see is definitely a greater public awareness, thanks to some of the media that we've mentioned earlier. And I think, Brad, to your earlier point about I May Destroy You, I mean, I definitely never seen in any... TV show or film, an example of somebody being assaulted through someone he'd met on Grindr. So that was, while harrowing to watch, definitely a really great thing. And I think that when I talk about these things to people now, whether it's friends or on a podcast like this, or just to somebody who's interested, I think the Me Too movement has helped a lot. People do understand a lot more about what this this actually is, what assault is, what consent is, what abuse is. And, you know, I, I get a largely positive reaction to everything that I say. Uh, not, not everything I say in life, but everything on this subject. And so I think the tide is turning in that sense. But I think we've had a system that's been broken for so long that it's going to take a long time to undo a lot of the abuse that we've seen and the amount of people who've gotten away with it in the past. But I'm all about positivity and optimism. And I think conversations like this, people like ourselves, like some of the stuff that Brad is doing, it can only help. Guys, I've got some questions from the Tally community. Am I all right to ask you two questions apiece? Absolutely. Go for it. Right. Okay. I'm going to start with you, Brad, if that's all right. Sure. Right. Here we go. So your background is in masculinity and self-improvement. What do you feel is the biggest stigma holding men back from talking about and opening up on past experiences and how as a society can we move on this? The biggest stigma is that that keeping men from being more vulnerable about their feelings and I mean, I think that the men who need it the most probably hate the term, but but 
a safe space, and that doesn't just mean a literal physical space, but but an emotional space with someone else that is uh, lacking judgment and full of curiosity. It's full of curiosity of the the why men are feeling the way they are, what is going on, and a kind of just non-judgmental, empathetic support and. You know, basically what that is, is therapy. I mean, that's literally what, what therapy is. And a lot more men would, would be helped by it because it's not emasculating and it's not uh, feminizing, which is this thing, the root of, of so much shame and, and, and men not being vulnerable is because they believe it is feminine and they believe that things that are feminine are bad. And so that's, you know, that's that kind of ingrained belief in the demonization of, of feminine things. And so, so that's what's kind of keeping it from, from progressing. But, you know, I feel like people are making therapy cool. Even the Sopranos made therapy okay for a guy, you know, as masculine as Tony Soprano. So, so <laughs> it's, we're getting there. And, you know, it, it, it is about curiosity instead of judgment, for sure. That was incredible. Thank you so much, Brad. To Rory, how long did it take you to accept and understand the night of the assault? Is it normal for people to take years to accept experiences like this? Whew, I'm glad Brad got that first question. That one was tough. How long did it take me to um, accept it? Probably about five years or so. I mean, I did not realize that what had happened to me was wrong for a very long time. I really thought it was par for the gay course. And it really was the Me Too movement gaining huge momentum and all the media coverage of it that made me really think about my experience in depth. And, you know, I've spoken to many other people who've been through similar experiences to me. And believe me, it takes a long time to process some of this stuff. You know, there's no one size fits all approach to recovering from something like this and how long that might take. You know, it comes in all different shapes and forms. So if you are struggling with something like this and you haven't quite gotten there yet in terms of verbalizing what's happened to you or seeking help for it, there's nothing wrong with that. Go at your own pace. There's no time limit on it whatsoever. So yes, that's completely a normal thing to be feeling. Wow, thank you. Back to Brad. I think you're competing against each other here for the best answer. Um, <laughs> to Brad, what is the best advice you can give to someone living with and finding it difficult to accept sexual assault? Well, I just want to say too, Rory, yeah, I, I'm very lucky to be on a, a podcast with you because uh, you, you're changing the way I'm looking at some of this stuff as well. But um, okay, to the answer, um, can you repeat the question again? I was just thinking about how great Rory's response was. And I, Absolutely, I yeah. He said, path for the gay course. I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Brad. What is the best advice you can give to somebody living with and finding it difficult to accept sexual assault? Well, okay. So while I'm not a, I'm a mental health professional, I have done a lot of research. I have talked to a lot of people who have had this, you know, varying experiences around assault. I think, of course, you know, the biggest uh, desire for most people is to be loved. And, and, and part of that is not feeling like they're alone. And so knowing that they are not alone, knowing that there are so many people out there like Rory who have experienced this, that it's not rare and that it's not 
something that will destroy your own life for sharing your truth, because that's what it is. We, we kind of have found ourselves in a society where the straight male dominated kind of hierarchy quiets anything that rattles that dominance. And so the idea of men being violent in a way that we can't see or being bad in a way that isn't as observable. It happens in secret or, or you know, in, in people's homes and rooms. And, and this, is, this is, it's hard to prove. All of these things make it difficult for this big, big truth to be seen. And so people, I just hope that they know that they are not alone and that it can get better by seeking allies and by seeking people to share it with. And just even, I'm sure, and I'd love to hear Rory's take on this, you know, I'm sure just even sharing it is such a weight off your chest because it is truth. It's, it's a light inside. It's your story. And the more you don't express your story and your truth, you're, you are bottling things up and those can cause stress, anxiety, disease, all of that stuff, because you are not being your true self. And so, like Rory said, I think it's on people's own time, but they're not alone. There will be people in your life that, that rise to meet you where you're at and what you're and with what you're going through. And, and yeah, and that's what, that's what I would say, but I, I would love, I would love to hear Rory's take on that as well as Sure. Josh, can you, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Yeah, and I was going to say to Brad then, he said, I'm, he started with I'm not an expert. He sounds like a guru. I thought he was going to start promoting his book then. Yeah, no, that yeah. was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that was fantastic. Uh, the, not yet. <laughs> the question again is, <laughs> what is the best advice you can give to someone living with and finding it difficult to accept sexual assault? I think the best advice I can give is take your time with it don't rush it. Don't try and find a way to cope with it that worked for person A and think if that doesn't work, that nothing will work for you. As I says, as I said, it's, it's not one size fits all. And so I think, well, therapy might work for someone. It might not work for someone else. You might watch a YouTube video that Brad's made and that could really inspire you. And that could be what you learned from is hearing about other people's experiences. And that might be you dealing with it. But what I can say is, I can only speak for myself. And I think Brad asked about this a moment ago. You know, when I did start speaking about it, it really did feel like 200 pounds were taken off my shoulders. And I think you might feel like no one will understand or you'll be judged or you'll be misinterpreted. But really, there are so many people out there who have been through the same thing or similar things. We all go through something in life that is difficult or traumatic or hard. We just don't all speak about it. So there will be understanding for you out there. You guys are great. Thank you so much. Final question to Rory, and then we'll do some checkouts and direct the listeners to various different self-help platforms. So Rory, final question. What was the reaction of you going to public with your story? Would you recommend doing this? And how has your life changed from doing this? Did, it have a, did you have a conversation with your family and friends about going public beforehand? Yeah, I would recommend going public if that feels right for you. Again, I don't think that you should look at myself or anybody else who's gone public and think that's the right course of action for me just because it may have worked for me. I think that this is a huge 
topic and it's very difficult for people to deal with sometimes. I actually sat several friends down alone, one-on-one, and didn't tell them in an overly dramatic way. I just said, look, you know, this is what happened to me several years ago and it's going to be coming out in the public domain relatively soon because I know that if it happened to somebody that I cared about, I'd want to find out from them as opposed to in an article or on radio or in a podcast. So I tried to do that and I think it largely was the best course of action for me. And I couldn't be happier that I've gone public with it. I think that it's brought me a lot of great things in my life and it's definitely helped me turn what was obviously an overwhelmingly negative situation into a positive. And the last thing I'd say on that is, you know, my ultimate motive for going public with my story was to hopefully change even just one young vulnerable person's life by hopefully them not making the same mistakes. But I say mistakes with a very heavy heart that I made because yes, I suppose I made some mistakes, but I was being human and I was in a very bad place. And I'm hoping that if somebody else is in a bad place like I was, they hopefully won't go down the path that I did. Hopefully they might listen to this conversation and perhaps it will increase their self-worth and show them that there is lots of hope out there. I think you're going to help a lot more than one person, Rory, both of you. I think you're both so incredible. And I'm getting quite unnerved, you see. I think what happens if you two meet and end up in the same room? There'll be a black hole or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think you, you're both incredible for, for talking about such a difficult topic. And I've learned so much and I've kind of delved into a couple of my own stories here, but I only felt comfortable to do that because of the two of you. So personally, I, I cannot thank you enough. And, and I do think whoever listens to this are going to get a lot of help. If not help, then a lot of information. And with that information, they can hopefully spread it far and wide from the skyscrapers of New York to the, the wheat fields of Dublin. Is the wheat fields in Dublin? <laughs> I feel like there's not, but I don't want to read your metaphor. So let's go with yes. <laughs> And you've got a new name, by the way. It's Legally Ginger. Oh, perfect. That was a hashtag on one of my Instas. So I'm taking it. I'm owning it all over again. <laughs> Guys, before we let you go, we're going to do checkout. So we started with a word, how we felt. We're going to end with a word and see if it's any different. Do you feel any better? So I'll start. I feel inspired. That's my word. Incredibly inspired. Uh, I, I feel communal. I feel community around me. With this group. Wow. And I feel, I feel heard. I feel very heard. And I think that that is something that I want for all survivors is for them to feel heard as well. Wow, you guys are fantastic. Now, do you want to direct the listeners to your pages, websites? I know this is an anonymous platform, but you guys have given us the authority to get your name out there, plaster it all over the world. So if you want to direct people to your pages, the websites or, or your book, Brad, I know you've got a book coming out, then please do it. <laughs> I'm going to dedicate it to you because it, it, it's now starting today. I want chapter, chapter 12. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I have a YouTube channel called Real Feels, but you can look up Real Feels or Brad Gage on the internet and find my stuff. But yeah, it's a podcast and, and a video series around all the stuff we're talking about now, but also, you know, 
Joe Rogan and Mr. Rogers and Tiger King and stuff like that. Wow. Sorry, Rory. I just wanted to get a wow in there. Have you got any pages we can direct people to, Rory? That deserved a wow. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm also a podcast host. I've got two podcasts at the moment. One is called Queer Ear, which shines a light on LGBTQ issues that don't get enough mainstream media attention. You can find that on all good podcast platforms. And I also have a podcast called Lights, Camera, Melodrama, which highlights the highs and lows of The X Factor, all the great music that came out of the show, but also all the people the show exploited along the way. If you want to catch up with me, on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Mr. Rory Boyle. And I actually had an article published in Newsweek today about surviving hate crime. If you want to have a look for that by the time this podcast is out, have a little scroll. It'll be on my timeline somewhere. Smoother than low pack that. Um, (laughs) he's got an auto queue in front of him or someone with cue cards. (laughs) He's got an apprentice who's moved in with him, I think. (laughs) <laughs> we've got some helplines that I want to kind of direct people to as well. There's a few, so please bear with me. We do have the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority helpline. Um, that's www.cica.gov.uk. We have the directory and book service, and that's books relating to survivors of abuse available by mail order. Netflix used to do that. They never got them back. It turned out well, though. Uh, they, they didn't need my nine ninety nine a month. We have the Havens. That's a service for anyone in London who has been raped or sexually assaulted. That's men, women, and children. We have Victims Information Service. That's telephone information lines run by victims. And finally, Victim Support. That's 24-7 support. It operates a support line and live chat service every single day of the year, even St. Paddy's Day. Um, I'm obsessed with Ireland all of a sudden. Sorry, Rory. I'm I'm so so sorry. Thank you for listening to the Teletalk podcast. Remember to subscribe to our channel and be the first to access our weekly episodes. For the latest news and updates on the Tally app launch, follow Atali.app on Instagram or you can visit www.tallyapp.com. Thank you and see you next time.